guest today is Peter Bergson, a creative process consultant and the founder of two self-directed learning centers. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Blake. It's great to be here. So let's dive right in. The two self-directed learning centers that you founded, what are they? And tell us just you know, a quick introduction to each of them, please. Sure. Uh, the uh, first one uh, was birthed by my wife, who uh, died in 2005. But in 1978, we opened a what we considered progressive preschool kindergarten program uh, in uh, suburban Philadelphia. And we uh, always knew, uh, it was our actually raison d'etre, uh, that we wanted to approach early uh, education from a different perspective from conventional schooling. Um, and I can talk as long as you care to listen about <laughs> this, but the gist it, it grew out of my uh, previous five years of work as a creative process consultant with a, uh, a firm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, called Synectics, and my uh, later-to-be wife uh, came to take one of our programs, and uh, in conversation midweek of this five-day program, we uh, identified with each other that what I was doing was remedial in the sense that I was helping adults retrieve thinking patterns that are natural to young people and then get schooled out of them, uh, even starting as early as uh, sometimes a Head Start program or you know, a traditional nursery school. And wouldn't it be great if there were a program that not only didn't uh, uh, lead these skills to atrophy, but in some cases even try and extinguish uh, the, the core elements of, of creative thinking, but in fact, nurtured them and expanded them. And um, simultaneous to this conversation, I was falling in love. It took her a, a couple years later to figure out that I would be a good life partner, but I knew it on the spot. And, uh, and in a couple of years, we uh, left um, our respective positions. She was uh, working in what I call a liberated Montessori school in Connecticut at the time. And, uh, and I left the consulting world and uh, we started uh, our nonprofit. And a couple of years after that, after doing workshops and consultations, um, we started our, our, uh, our center which, as I said, was a preschool kindergarten with the intention of a lot of parental involvement, but it was very much self-directed, which frankly, I think is really easy to do with three to five-year-olds, which is the age group that we were working with. And, and then um, uh, our, our first enrollee was our firstborn, and uh, when she was five years old and approaching the end of the stated age of our program, our friends started saying, well, um, what do you, and clients were saying, well, what's going to happen with Amanda when she's too big for the furniture kind of thing? And uh, we honestly didn't know. We were naive enough to think that there might be a private school, a progressive private school in the area that would allow for part-time participation because we just didn't think that it was five years with us and then for the rest of her life, most of her waking hours, you know, out of the home or off doing something else with other people and our seeing her, you know, nights and weekends kind of thing. Um, but uh, there was no such... Um, plan available. Um, as, a, as a quick side note, um, one of the admissions people uh, said to us, well, if we allow Amanda to come part-time, everybody would want to do that. And my response is, well, doesn't that tell you something? Um, but they didn't want to hear that. And um, 
so we were really flummoxed. And then another one of our families um, who had been begging us to become an elementary school, extend the ages and all that sort of thing. But we just did not want to jump through all the state hoops and such. Um, she came up uh, to us one day clutching a, um, a, a sheaf of papers saying, in essence, Eureka, Eureka, I found it. What she had was an early uh, copy of John Holt's magazine, Growing Without Schooling. And she said, we're going to homeschool um, Christian and Emily, which is their, their two. Um, and I had, frankly, never heard of homeschooling, uh, let alone unschooling. And of course, at that point, John hadn't coined the term. And um, but uh, clearly, uh, this was a potential path forward. And so uh, the first thing I did was uh, uh, pick up the phone and call uh, John's office in Cambridge. And I spoke with Pat Ferenga. And I said, we would like to arrange for John to come down and do a, a sort of conventional lecture with a Q&A on uh, how children learn and uh, why children fail, which I know is not exactly the same as the book title. Um, and then we'd like him to stay overnight and do a second workshop on homeschooling. Um, because we think that there are a number of families down here who would be interested in that. And uh, to shorten the story a little bit, we did exactly that. John became a great friend over the years. Um, and the uh, first um, uh, night's lecture was uh, very successful. And the second night's homeschooling workshop uh, which we held in a large auditorium with a side room so that people could bring their young folks and they could play with a lot of the materials from our, our center um, to buy more time for the parents, uh, be, began the transformation of our preschool kindergarten into a home education resource center. And, and just to get some context yeah. at this, what year are we in at this moment? Uh, John came down in 83, I think. Okay. Um, yeah. And then I imagine that a sort of home. That's 1983, by yes. the way, not 18. <laughs> uh, I imagine that the idea of a homeschool resource center, a place where families who are legally homeschooling can have their kids spend the time of the day, but not necessarily all five days a week or every hour of a day that you attend. I imagine that that was a very novel concept at that time. Was anyone else doing that? Uh, there were other um, people looking at, uh, and the umbrella term that I use is the one of the 60s uh, called open education. Um, uh, there were other people doing open education. There was a private school that, um, to the best of my recollection, went all the way through the grades right from the get-go, but I know they ended up going through high school, uh, called Upatinus, started by a wonderful lady named Sandy Hurst um, and a couple other folks. Um, they were the only other uh, and they were some distance from us. They were an hour away. They were the only other option that I was aware of. And to further describe the context that I think you're asking about, when uh, we first opened our preschool kindergarten program, um, one of the things that we did was we went to a meeting of the Mainline Nursery School Association, I think that's what it's called, um, uh, just to meet the other directors and announce ourselves in the area and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and our original plan, which we stuck to at that point, for this program was four mornings a week. It was two hours and 15 minutes from 9.15 to noon, uh, four days a week. And at the time, there was tremendous pressure 
particularly coming from parents with so many, uh, two things, I think, women returning to the workforce and the divorce rate, uh, and therefore women not even feeling that they had a choice. Um, and also what I believe to be the misinterpretation of uh, the significance of the early years with regard to intellectual development in particular, thinking that if a little bit is good, a lot is better. Mm. So, so there may be a big difference between four mornings a week and five mornings a week. How could you deprive that child of that fifth morning, you monster? And not only that, but there was a pressure uh, to, for what they call all-day kindergarten. And the public schools were having meetings with parents uh, who were basically, in some cases, uh, there, were, there was, uh, maybe it was two-thirds, one-third, but two-thirds of the families were uh, really pushing hard for all-day kindergarten. And so the system wanted more time uh, of, of the young people um, involved and we were going in the opposite direction. And so we knew from the get-go that uh, we were counterculture, if you will, in, in that regard, as well as the degree to which we were taking a self-directed approach. We had a 10-minute a uh, group time at the end of the day uh, just to give a sense of closure and a sense of community, but all the rest of the time, the young people made their own choices of, of whether they were inside or outside, uh, whether they were working on their own or with a friend or a small group. And of course, there was lots of fluidity there. So there were lots of, um, uh, lots of ways in which we were very different from the, from the tradition. So um, I just want to zoom yeah. out here, Peter. You started with the preschool... Uh, and then you had John Holt come and visit, and then everyone got very excited about homeschooling. And is this when Open Connections was born and it became a, a sort of center for homeschoolers? And, and yes. you started admitting older ages? Yes. All right. That's exactly right. And we changed our programming um, from four mornings a week uh, to, um, well, we kept that for the four to seven-year-old group. Um, Pennsylvania at the time was one of two states whose uh, compulsory uh, schooling law did not kick into place until the young person's eighth birthday. Everywhere else in the country, I think Washington State was the other option. Everywhere else in the country, when you turn five or six, um, or maybe in a couple instances, seven, but for the most part, five or six, you had to, you became accountable to the state, her parents did. Um, so the beauty of our situation was that families could delay entry into conventional schooling and experiment with um, self-directed learning slash homeschooling slash unschooling without having to uh, address any consideration whatsoever with regard to the school district or, or the state. Um, that was the good news in Pennsylvania. Um, and I, I want to just tell you a minute's worth on the, on the political situation because it, it does relate to uh, the growth of our first center. Um, uh, in the mid eighties, uh, 85, I think, um, I was approached by Howard Richmond, who was very active in home education in the western part of the state, uh, just outside Pittsburgh, um, and uh, a couple of other folks to say, um, we find the law, once you turn eight, to be really onerous because the way it was written, you had to get permission from your local school superintendent. Uh, and there was no state law uh, that uh, identified the 
criteria um, beyond saying that with the approval of the superintendent, um, education could be um, provided by a quote, properly qualified private tutor. And what homeschoolers were claiming was that the parents were properly qualified private tutors. Unfortunately, most of the superintendents did not agree. And there are 501 school districts in Pennsylvania. So there were 501 different interpretations of the law. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was chaos. Mm-hmm. And there was even a situation uh, in a local district where a family had the support of their superintendent um, and were happily homeschooling with their eight, nine, 10-year-olds. Um, and he was involved in, on a Thursday in a horrible car accident and had to leave his position. And he was replaced by an assistant school superintendent who was uh, dramatically opposed to homeschooling. And he sent out a letter to all the homeschooling families in the district saying, if your young person is not enrolled on Monday, you'll be charged with truancy. Oh, wow. This is the mid 80s. Yeah. Just to try to give you a sense of, of the atmosphere at the time. Yeah. So and how, we and how t- relatively easy it is today and, and forgiving. Exa- exactly. I mean, it was a major paradigm shift uh, in, in one way, in, in several ways. Um, so uh, this group of other leaders of, of local groups um, asked me to join representing a, a big part of the Eastern Pennsylvania homeschoolers. Uh, to to do the work to uh, amend the law. Uh, and uh, it was a three-year process. Um, Howard and uh, a couple other folks did most of the heavy lifting. Um, I was happy to be involved um, uh, at various times. We had uh, legislative breakfasts out in Harrisburg. We had uh, we organized all manner of lobbying with our um, local representatives and, and senators. Um, and it was a real life civics lesson. Uh, I learned so much about laws and government and how it worked. And it's a, a great example of, of homeschooling for an adult. Um, it, it, Peter, and, your story really reminds me of Pat Montgomery's story of uh-huh. uh, of exploring all the homeschooling laws in Michigan and essentially getting a DIY you know, law degree and going to battle with some of the state representatives and, and ultimately winning. Exactly. Exactly. And I think uh, our situation was, you know, its own, but hardly unique and one by one and two by three and whatever. Um, some with the support of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, some you know, without that and on their own. Um, and ours was a, a perfect example, a textbook example, I think, of, um, uh, of collaboration between uh, two groups that otherwise tended to disagree fairly strongly on a number of other socio-political issues, Um, but the uh, conservative Christian community was absolutely um, key to to our success, to the success of the mission, and so was the secular um, uh, homeschooling community, which which I represented and, and some of the others. Um, and we worked very, very well together, knowing that neither of us would be successful on our own. Um, and we had hearings where we had young people testify and we brought in uh, other experts. And we told stories of what had happened to various families that made the Democratic House Committee, uh, Education Committee, which was where such law would have to originate, or such bill, uh, it made their hair curl. They, they, they couldn't believe some of the things that were being done. And if 
if we had time, we I could go into them. But just rest assured that that was all part of the explosion of interest in in homeschooling, whether it was school at home homeschooling or unschooling or a hybrid, you know, whatever folks mm -hmm. ended up doing. Mm -hmm. And um, and so our programs uh, grew from uh, just the preschool kindergarten program to uh, uh, one day programs and two day programs um, for various age groups. Um, and um, pretty quickly, we outgrew the basically 1,100 square foot uh, building that we were in uh, that had worked so well for 25 young people ages you know, three to five. And um, it was clear that we had to, we had to uh, grow, we had to move to grow, if you will. And there was plenty of interest in what we were doing. Um, and in uh, the late 90s, um, uh, one of our families approached us saying uh, they would they were interested in continuing uh, a self-directed path for their young people, but only if there were a place like Open Connections that they could use uh, all the way through the high school age years. Um, and they had access to some funding. Um, and it turns out we had access to even more funding that we were unaware of uh, in-house. And over the period of the next year and a half, we arranged for that funding and found uh, a new location and uh, moved from our uh, thousand plus square foot building to a 28 acre campus that had um, uh, a couple of ponds and a very large stone farmhouse and the opportunity to build a second building um, that we made to look like a, a converted barn. Um, and, uh, and at that point, the program started an even greater pace of growing to the point where um, uh, in the uh, last couple of years, enrollment was, uh, I think, around 120 or so wow. young people um, and a wide variety of programs and a staff of 25 and all so that sort of thing. I just want to dwell on this moment in the history of Open Connections where you, you leapfrogged to this much larger space with more than a hundred young people enrolled. Because I feel like a lot of people who are interested in starting alternative schools, they look at a place like Open Connections, they look at a, a school like the Sudbury Valley School, and they say, this is magic. This is how self-directed learning works when you have a big diverse community, uh, when you have 25 staff, when you have you know, a stone mansion, and there's a, a barn to do things like noisier things like music projects. And then they scratch their heads and say, but how do I get there? Because the reality is most little self-directed learning programs or alternative schools start in the, the church basement, whether proverbial or not. They start in these, these very uh, challenging physical environments and the, the enrollment levels are so low that, for example, um, you know, once you get your first teenager, that teenager has a very high incentive to not stick around because there's no other teenagers there. It's like I'm hanging out with a bunch of little kids. That's how the teenager feels. So it's this leap from tiny bootstrapped program into this next level, which I think Open Connections is, is one of the very few examples of successfully um, making this leap that I think confounds so many people. And it, it sounds like the way you just told the story the real linchpin here was having a couple families with money who believed in your vision and who wanted for their own children, they wanted the larger campus and they were willing to put some serious money down to make that happen. Am I getting the story straight? Um, absolutely. And I would say that the money component is half of 
the answer to the question, how do you, how do you grow and keep growing and become a large enough community so that, um, the, uh, particularly as they get to be uh, teens, um, uh, they stay rather than go off to high school. Um, that still happened um, during my tenure at uh, Open Connections, um, which was subsequently uh, the leadership was taken over by uh, primarily by one of my daughters and her husband. Um, and uh, uh, we had a we, we hired a third uh, kind of co-director when I uh, retired. Um, and uh, uh, the other half, though, is that you have to have um, what the families want. And the families are uh, two, there are two components to the families. There are the parents and the young people. And uh, both, for the most part, have to be satisfied. Um, and even if the young people love it, if the parents are worried that they're uh, they're sacrificing uh, the positive aspects of, of, of the theory of schooling, um, uh, it's, it's going to be really difficult for them to want to continue with the young folks. And actually, for a lot of the young people, the same is true. Uh, it's not enough just to feel free. It's not enough just to have a kind of hands-off attitude on the part of the adults, um, meaning the, the staff. There has to be some substantive uh, and conventionally um, valued intellectual development and uh, on a on a um, on a uh, on a level that feels as good as what the young people would be getting if they were in a school that that they liked you know that served their purposes um, and uh, I know that well, I've read, I've never um, been directly involved with Sudbury Valley. I know that there is a sense um, that the young people on their own uh, generate enough of that. Um, and for their population, uh, I guess it seems to be true. Um, uh, and if there is, if there are enough people in the area who are so, um, for whom conventional schooling is just so unacceptable, um, then uh, you can you can allow for more people to kind of find their own way in suburban Philadelphia. Um, there is, I, I think the Philadelphia area is much more traditional, even conservative in some ways, uh, certainly with regard to edu education slash schooling. There are, there's no end to the number of private schools. And ironically, the belief is that the school districts in the suburban Philadelphia area, at least in, in the Western suburbs, are some of the best in the country. Um, uh, I personally, you know, have my own opinion about that, but that's the public perception. And so to swim against that tide, uh, you've got to have concrete, demonstrable um, offerings uh, to combat that sense that uh, young people who are just playing all day are missing out on something really important. 
and 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 I think we were good. We were good at doing that. We hired people who had uh, top quality skill sets who could figure out how to work with young people on a on a, a self chosen basis. We didn't assign anybody and say you have to take this class or anything like that. But they put together programs that young people enjoyed, felt empowered in, and believed, rightly so, I think, that they were really learning the same quality content that their school counterparts were doing. I, I'd like to, to talk about this for a second. I think this is a very important point to make. But first of all, what I'm hearing you saying is that for your school or your center to survive and thrive, you need to be responsive to both parents and young people. Um, and, and specifically, you have to understand the culture that these, uh, let's just talk about the parents for a second, that, that the parents are coming from. And in the case of uh, Pennsylvania, it sounds like there's this very academic achievement oriented culture. And there's all these private schools that parents are thinking, well, if my kid doesn't go to Open Connections, then maybe they'll go to one of these private schools. And so to say, we're just going to focus on total autonomy, total self-direction, play is the most important thing. That's how you develop important creative thinking skills. Like maybe that won't fly in this specific subculture, whereas it could fly, for example, uh, in the suburbs west of Boston, where the Sudbury Valley School is. And we could theorize about why that works there, uh, but maybe that's not helpful. Uh, it, but this cultural assumption seems to also matter for the kids. And, and I've seen this all over the place with homeschoolers and unschoolers and, and kids who go to alternative schools, um, feeling genuinely concerned that they are not learning the same things that the other kids of their same age uh, are learning in school. And not because they think that... <laughs> They really won't be able to survive in life without being taught European history at age 13 or without being taught geometry at, at age 14. But just because kids and especially adolescents are very peer oriented and they care about what everyone else is doing and they care about being a member of their, their social communities. And so if the center that they're a part of doesn't provide that opportunity for what you said, you know, is like intellectual growth. Um, even traditional academic achievement, uh, then that can be a liability for the whole institution. Exactly. Um, uh, I would say, truthfully, teens are really not that much more concerned with what their peers think of them than adults are. Um, uh, I, I see evidence of it all the time. Uh, and so parent, a lot of parents are very concerned about what other parents think uh, or how they compare and contrast how their young people are doing. Um, uh, I, I saw this uh, personally when um, one of my daughters, Julia, the one who became co-director of uh, Open Connections for a number of years, um, she played uh, on the varsity soccer team at our local high, public high school. And uh, I remember standing in the stands with uh, the other parents whom we'd known, gotten to know quite well um, because Julia had played youth soccer with them and we'd gone out of town to tournaments and all that sort of thing. And when it became college admissions time, that's all the parents could talk about was, and they would say things like, well, we got into Smith, but we didn't get in. And what went through my mind first was, what do you mean we? Um, but, <laughs> but secondly, it was, un, it, it's understandable. I don't mean to be completely deriding them um, or even partially, um, but it was an example to me of, how important the opinions of their peers were to them. Um, I think that there's a basic need for a sense of belonging at any age. Uh, and of course, if you're familiar with the tenets of, 
Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, you know, that's one of the key human needs is a sense of belonging. Uh, it's balanced by a sense of autonomy, um, but the sense of belonging is there. And uh, it's obviously very evident in teens. Um, and there are some individuals who are feel that stronger than others. Um, uh, but um, that sense of belonging is another key component, I think, to the success and the growth of, of a center. And so uh, the fact that we started these um, kind of mini communities in the larger communities made a big difference. We called them uh, by the unfortunate name group tutorials, but there would be somewhere between eight and 12, 14 young people who would meet one or two days a week for the full day uh, with the same adult uh, facilitator or, or team of two facilitators. And they were uh, structurally in, in that sense, like the one room schoolhouse on the prairie, um, the young people would be uh, represent a, an age range, but a, a narrower than the full community. So they'd be like uh, nine to 11 year olds or 11 to 13 year olds and, and such. And uh, they became generally very tight knit, not, not exclusionary, but constructively connected groups. And that's, that's all the number of, of friends and associates I think most young people really need. You don't need a hundred close friends. Um, you know, one really special friend and then a cluster of people that you feel connected to. Um, and so the, the organization of the programs fed that basic human need of a sense of these are my, these are my people. And then in the same way that, uh, I don't know if this is really true, but it's my fantasy at, at, a, at a, uh, a political convention, you know, you have the great state of Virginia and the great state of Pennsylvania and the great state of Texas. They all feel special about who they are on the one hand. And on the other hand, they all feel great that they're part of a, a bigger group mm -hmm. called the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, which in turn at least this used to be true. I hope it comes back. Uh, we're part of an even bigger group called the United States. Um, and that, that sense of belonging happened. So it's like I go to OC was became kind of part of their identity, counterbalanced by I'm a self-directed learner. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I'm also a member of the Tuesday, Thursday group tutorial. Yeah. I, so I, I think you're yeah. describing this difference between the sort of radical individualism of self-directed learning and then the, as you said, the, the basic human need for for a right. sense of belonging in a, in a community. And it's and it's very easy, and I've seen myself fall prey to this this reasoning. It's very easy to emphasize the the individualism. and and I think that even in uh, let's say like the Silicon Valley tech circles, it's easy to take that, that logic, which is all we need is more individualization and say, well, let's just create advanced algorithms that, that will teach each kid exactly what they need to know at the exact moment that they're ready to learn it. And they, this is conceived of as some sort of, you know, utopia. And, and it's really missing that the other half, um, well, it's missing a genuine sense of autonomy, yeah. but it's missing this other half uh, the sense of belonging. And I think that's a, a tension that's going to remain with us uh, for a long time. That it seems like a very difficult problem to solve, uh, very difficult to find a balance between these two sides. Well, it's, it's difficult if you believe that there is a one size fits all and you're in a perpetual search for what is the perfect shoe size that will fit every American youth. Yep. Um, just find yeah, that shoe, then force everyone to wear right. it. That's the answer. Right. 
Right. The word, the word diversity, I think, is obviously important in a, a, a cultural and a racial and an economic context. I think it's equally important in the sense of um, personal tastes and personal developmental schedules and um, personal interests. So uh, I think we need a system that allows people who are interested in algebra to pursue it and go as far as they care to um, and, and on their own schedule. And if that means when they're 10 years old, you know, great. And if it means when they're 28 years old, that's great. Um, You're leaving them behind, Peter. How dare you, you monster. The the Uh, problem, exactly. The problem arises with this belief in standardization. And uh, I actually finally got around to reading uh, John Taylor Gatto's uh, history of um, uh, the underground uh, history of American education, history huge of American, book. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, he went from a personal uh, realization that what he was doing uh, with the best of intentions as a classroom teacher um, to was, was in many ways being harmful to his, uh, his students to uh, studying the history of the development of the school system and and got to a position that I think most people or many people would view as almost conspiracy theorist type of thinking um, that the system was in fact designed by industrialists for industrialists um, to create a labor force that would be willing to um, help industry grow by being willing to do repetitive menial tasks um, for uh, infinite amounts of time for meaningless pay or uh, barely sustainable. um, And worst of all, to believe that, that they should be grateful for having those kinds of jobs. And as soon as that well, I don't know if it was in how intentional it was, um, but uh, I, I do think that that's been largely the effect. Um, and uh, with, with you know great various gradations, um, you're, you're better off, I guess, practicing law uh, than you are. Um, standing at the same machine, working like a robot. Um, but in both cases, if you don't, if you aren't loving what you're doing, um, then then you are not well served by whatever system helped you get to that level of of uh, performance and and economic sustainability that that you're at. Um, and if I if I may, I'll use that to segue into dropping the second shoe. Uh, um, I don't know. It seems like three days ago I started by saying I started two centers. Uh, the second one um, I started in um, 2015 uh, with a colleague um, who whom I met on the board of uh, Open Connections and who had a great deal of experience in working in the inner city. Um, she, she was executive director of a large nonprofit um, that provided all manner of services except education, quote unquote. Um, uh, and when she learned uh, more about the self-directed learning approach, um, and she learned that I was interested in taking this model into the inner city. Um, the idea of starting a new center um, that would be directed towards um, the population that is currently trapped in you know the terrible schools that we all know about. Um, uh, 
I forgot how I started that sentence, but we said, yeah, let's do it. And uh, at that point, I had retired uh, uh, for several years um, and um, was ready to jump back in. And so we, uh, in January of 2016, in rented church space, opened a program um, for uh, four to uh, 17-year-olds um, in uh, the Germantown section of Philadelphia. And for those who know Philadelphia, um, they, they know that to be a community that is somewhat uh, racially integrated, but predominantly African-American um, and other people of color. And uh, I did that out of a belief that what they needed, uh, just like everybody else, but even more so uh, than what are referred to as white privileged youth, they needed the, the skills of um, creative problem solving. Uh, they needed to be able to conceptualize and then uh, act on, accumulate the necessary resources and knowledge and skills to create the life they wanted. And whereas what I saw happening and continue to see happening so much in the dialogue around schooling in the city is just get a diploma so you can get a job. And there was really no or very little dialogue about find out what you love to do and find a way to earn a living doing it. Mm -hmm. And and I thought that it was just totally racist to limit that view of the, the, the purpose of what's called education. I keep putting it in quotes and I can tell you why if you're interested. But I just thought it was it was like uh, the track system in public schools where they have the academic track and the non-academic track. And if you look at most schools traditionally, um, they're, they're divided economically, largely. Um, and it, it just seemed to me to be uh, racist, frankly, to think, well, these families of color, um, you're, you're, you're suggesting a world that uh, really is not fair. Um, and it's like taking them on a field trip to um, Neiman Marcus and say, look at all this great stuff that you'll never be able to afford. And I just found that totally reprehensible and unacceptable. And, and that's I thought- a theme that John Taylor Gatto spent a lot of time uh, thinking mm. about and writing about too, since yeah. he worked mostly in New York City, uh, public middle schools, and he worked in a, a lot of different schools, uh, not just um, affluent schools. Yeah. And and so I had a lot to learn from, from John Gatto on this subject. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had a conversation that really cemented it for me, even after we opened, with one, uh, uh, she's... 14 at the time. And I said, Amani, how do you see yourself as an adult? What, what do you imagine that you would be doing? And this is a, this is a young girl who just loved to draw, uh, to, to do animation. Um, and she loved animals, um, live, live animals. And she knew so much. And I said, how do you know all this stuff? And she said, watching YouTube videos. And um, uh, we were able to get her, help her get, she really got it on her own, uh, an internship at the Philadelphia Zoo that she never imagined that, you know, she could have gotten before. And, uh, and when I said, so how do you see yourself as an adult? And she said, well, I imagine you know, I'll have two, maybe three jobs, you know, so that I can pay rent for an apartment. And uh, I said, uh, could you think for a moment, imagine 
having one job that you loved that paid you so much that you didn't need any other jobs. And she looked at me as if I was describing life on Mars. It was a world that she had just, she'd never heard of, or at least never thought uh, she could be a part of. And I don't think I was dangling any unachievable vision in front of her. Um, and of course, there are lots and lots of people of color who already fit that description. But in her life situation, um, that was not uh, that was not part of her reality. Hmm. And, uh, and she's not alone in that. And so when I uh, started natural creativity, it was as much for the parents as for the young people to say they not only deserve uh, the full pie of whatever is going to make up for a happy life for them, but they have, they have what it takes uh, to get on the train and do the work, do the, do take whatever next steps need to happen uh, in order to, uh, to have that life. And uh, I just like to point out that there was this documentary uh, made about natural creativity center that, that prominently features you and it's called unschooled. And I, I enjoyed that documentary and I recommend it to people. Um, I want to get back to the uh, timeline of natural creativity because this is still a fairly recent uh, project. It was opened in early 2016. You ran it for about four years, I believe, and then handed off leadership to two co-directors. And uh, uh, Yes. Um, actually, right from the get-go, um, uh, Chris Steinmeier, um, who was, uh, had his uh, doctorate from Penn uh, in, in homeschooling. Um, oh, wow. Kind of looking for a place to, um, uh, to continue to pursue his, uh, um, his interest. Uh, he had come to me when, um, just as he was starting his doctoral dissertation a few years before. Um, and uh, I offered him a job at Open Connections. And he said, I really can't take this job, which I would love to have. And I'll never finish my dissertation. Um, and I guess there's a lot of data out there to suggest that that sort of thing can happen. Um, so uh, he said, thanks, but no thanks, but uh, let's stay in touch. And so then when the idea of natural creativity came up, it was a no brainer for me uh, to uh, contact Chris. And so right from the uh, get-go, um, I don't know, it feels a little uh, egocentric to call him a protege, but we started a process of, of my unloading everything that I had to share and adding it to what he already knew and, and had shared, because he had been in several different uh, uh, other organizations, um, including social justice uh, work and uh, a Montessori school and stuff. So he came with a lot of his own learnings as well, but he didn't have the core element of the creative process work that grew out of my consulting work. And to me, that's the most distinguishing characteristic of the of the NC and OC philosophy. And I, I, I want to make sure that I don't miss uh, this opportunity to say um, there's a third center that has just started up um, by my daughter, Julia, and her husband, Mike, um, with the support of some of the Open Connections staff and many of the OC families. Um, uh, to carry on uh, the and extend the the open connections tradition, um, they uh, they found that they were not able to uh, to continue that work um, the way they wanted to, 
and felt the need to to um, start up a center over which they had uh, more control. Um, it's called Cupola Academy. They just launched their website. Um, the term comes from uh, the can, cupola can you, that you can you spell this for me? Cupola. Cupola. Yes, yeah. C U P O L A. A cupola is th- that. Um, structure that's mounted on the top of buildings often has a dome uh, and, and a bell in it. And in fact, that's what we had in the original Open Connections building, the, the thousand square foot one. And it was kind of a symbol of, of Open Connections, which we were not able to carry into the new property. Um, but when I sold the, the property in, in Bryn Mawr, uh, the new owners allowed us to take the cupola. They didn't want it. And so uh, Julia and Mike adopted it as a, both as a symbol and a name for their new venture. So they're currently in a rented uh, space at a nature center, uh, uh, which is a terrific place. And um, they're going to be operating out of that for the next year. Will they continue their search for? Uh, a permanent yeah. uh, location. So that's really what defines our particular approach. Um, and there are very specific techniques and skills in the creative process that grew out of the work with adults that, as I said, were largely remedial, that uh, we've all been dedicated to uh, uh, further establishing and, and enriching in the lives of young people, because that's, you know, and schools say that all the time. We need creative thinkers, but I don't think they have a clue in the world how to do that. <laughs> I re- to this day, they haven't read the literature. They haven't learned from the people who are, are doing it um, in whatever context. Um, and in the same way that, I don't know if you ever heard the term open classrooms. Yeah. I mean, it feels um, a bit dated, but I'm, uh, I know it was a big dated. thing in, in the seventies. It was a very, very big thing for at least 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> but all they had was the trappings of what was called the Leicestershire method in the Midlands of England. They had a very progressive very hands-on, student-oriented. Uh, when they said integrated classroom, they meant by age level um, uh, approach to education. And they took these working class youths and uh, cr- helped them develop in ways that had never been seen. Um, in And American uh, educational theorists fell in love with the, the Leicestershire approach and they tried to uh, bring it to the United States. Um, and uh, it, it totally flopped because it, it ran up against the, um, the paradigm of compulsory schooling. Uh, you know, everything that Gatto and so many others have written about. So Peter, I wanted to circle back. You mentioned that the word education, you would say quote unquote education, and you have some, some thoughts about that. I'm curious what your definition or, or, or what you like or dislike about the word education is. I'm happy to speak to that. The first is, and, and I know I'm certainly not alone in this regard, uh, I think it's critical to make a distinction between education and schooling. And when people talk about the education system, I think they're talking about something that doesn't exist. And not just because there are so many different approaches to schooling, but that uh, I don't define education um, as being schooling. For me, education is an internal process. 
It happens between the ears of each individual. And it's the process of, uh, I guess it's the organic process of building synapses and um, the, the connections of the wiring. Um, but it's, uh, John Holt called it meaning making. Um, Ooh, I like that. Uh, uh, coming to understand uh, how the world works and uh, uh, a developmental optometrist named Harry Wax, W-A-C-H-S, and a protege of Piaget's named Hans Firth um, put together a, their body of knowledge, which I've uh, also integrated into uh, natural creativity and will be at Cupola Academy, uh, called conceptual development. And conceptual development is an example of the difference between comprehension and uh, memorization. So you can read a hundred books on riding a bicycle or swimming, but that doesn't mean you can ride a bike or swim. You have to get on the bike or in the water and your, your brain has to figure out what to do to stay afloat or, you know, stay upright and, and make progress. And that's developmental. You, it cannot be transferred from one person to another. Mm. This feels like the difference b between information and knowledge to me. Exactly. Information exactly. being very easy to systematize and to deliver as if it's a physical product through a network of teachers and schools. But knowledge is this intimately personal thing. And, and the way that information turns into knowledge is really different for each person. It requires a lot more individual attention and a lot of just personal time and space for that, for that young person. Exactly. And I, I would uh, wish to add a third uh, point in that series, uh, even more basic than information is data. So you can have data and still not be informed. Uh, and I think there's so much of that going around where, you know, people are making decisions on the basis of data. Um, but uh, it's, they haven't made sense of the data yet. And once you've made sense of the data and you've made sense of enough data, then you get to the point that you just described of being knowledgeable. Hmm. Um, and I think there are important distinctions. And so what most instruction does is it attempts to transfer data in a way that is informative uh, and, uh, and, and even uh, generating knowledge. Um, but that isn't the way the mind works. That isn't, so uh, you can memorize uh, and you can regurgitate, but that doesn't mean you're educated. You're only educated in that area if you have made sense of, own, and can use the inputs that you've gotten. Yeah. And if you have a and personal is, relationship to it. Right. And this is, this is the, basically, that was a long-winded way of saying what John Holt said so much more eloquently, which is learning. He said learning. I would, you and I would say knowledge building uh, is not the uh, result of teaching. It's the result of the activity or the product of the activity of the learner. I think that is a great place to, to wrap up our conversation, Peter. <laughs> I'm right. sure you and I could talk for three more hours, uh, but your, your career, which seems to have spanned about 50 years uh, running these, these programs and doing the creativity uh, coaching before that, uh, it's just incredible. And yeah, thank you for, for all of the, blood, sweat, tears, and, and money, probably you've, you've pushed into this movement. Well, and I can genuinely say my motives were 90% uh, selfish. Um, it, it, 
I did it because I love it. And, and this is what I want for everybody to be doing what they love. I love it. <laughs> All right, Peter Bergson, thanks for coming on my show. Thank you so much, Blake. I admire your work. I've got all your books and I'm happy to pass them around and refer people to them. So it's a mutual admiration situation here.